This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, folks, so we have Lauren Bindell here with us today. He's the president and co-founder of Savings.com. He co-founded the company in March of 2007 with the idea of giving consumers the best deals on the Internet. Pretty big, pretty big vision. Um, and actually, a number of companies had that vision at the same time. The difference is Lauren delivered on it, and a number of those other companies did not. They ended up becoming one of Inc. Magazine's fastest-growing companies in America, and they've saved consumers hundreds of millions of dollars while generating well over $500 million of annual sales for their partners, many of whom are big brands and big retailers. So that's all nice, right? Making a lot of money and you know, helping out your partners is good. But Lauren is also um, really focused on his employees. Savings has been consistently voted one of the best places to work in Los Angeles, uh, which is pretty fantastic. And they're expanding internationally. So right now they're in the U.K., Germany, France, India, as well as the U.S. Um, but in the next 12 months, they've targeted 10 additional countries that, they're, um, that they want to expand into. So anyone here that might be interested in international work, you might want to uh, check out Savings. There's a lot of opportunities there. In June of last year, the company was acquired by, Co- by Cox Target Media. Um, the official un- uh, number was never announced, but it was certainly well over $100 million um, with, an- with additional money for performance targets. Before starting savings, Lauren was, um, ran Teleflora's affinity marketing business. Um, and before that, he, he was with Dow Chemical. So he graduated with a, a chemical engineering degree, worked at Dow. Uh, And then from Dow, he went into consulting, where he worked at the Boston Consulting Group as a strategy consultant and had an opportunity to see how a lot of businesses ran. Some of them ran well, some didn't. Um, And it's a great learning experience for a young person uh, to to work as a consultant. You could just see a lot of uh, different situations. So I try to bring folks in here that have been successful financially, but also successful in their personal lives. Lauren is no exception. Um, it's one thing to you know sort of make a lot of money. Um, it's harder when you're doing that to give back to your community. Um, and Lauren has given back in a pretty in a pretty impressive way. He was awarded the Steve Soberoff, Soberoff Leadership Award from the Big Brothers and Big Sisters organization. He's been a big brother for nine years, and he's been an active leader within that organization during that time. He also serves on the board of directors of KIPP, which is a charter school network that operates K-12 schools for low-income, within low-income communities. And Lauren's quite proud of the fact that the number one middle school and the number one elementary school in the entire Los Angeles Unified School District, which is humongous, um, both of the schools that are number one in those categories are um, within his program, the KIPP program. Uh, Certainly something to be very proud of. Um, Lauren's also a member of the board of directors of Young Presidents Organization of Los Angeles, um, and he's been able to balance all of this success, all of this philanthropy with um, a great home life. He has two children, um, a wonderful wife, um, and again, he's living proof to you guys that you can win on the playing field of business, but you can also um, win um, without sacrificing your personal life. Let's welcome Lauren to our class.
Thank you for that uh, very gracious introduction. I've been looking forward to this all week. I love talking about being an entrepreneur. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love talking to prospective entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are bold, they're aggressive, they're risk takers. They're all a little crazy, because um, you gotta be to do this. It's a lot of hard work and the odds are against you. Um, but they're also a lot of fun to hang out with and, and, and tend to be some pretty great people in my experience. Um, the, um, I, was, I thought a lot about what I was going to talk about tonight, and I want to really steer clear of giving you guys advice um, for two reasons. Well, first, the only advice I'll give you is be careful of people who give you advice. Um, <laughs> chances are it might not be applicable to you. It could be really bad advice as well, or it could be really great advice but have nothing to do with your path. We're all different. My goals may be very different than your goals. Your skills may be very different than my skills, so my path is not your path. Um, so I'm going to try not to give advice. Um, but instead, I just want to give you my background, uh, things that I learned, what I found useful, and you guys can take things that are interesting to you and you can just throw away the rest, um, or play Angry Birds or whatever, I don't know. Um, but um, I wanted to start with a little bit about you know, why, why you guys want to be an entrepreneur. So I'd love to hear a few people shout out why you want to be an entrepreneur. I'd love to know who I'm talking to tonight, just so I can kind of tailor my talk accordingly. So just throw it out. Shout it out loud. Well, before I do that, how many of you guys want to be entrepreneurs? Okay, so about half. How many of you are confident you're going to be an entrepreneur immediately after college? Okay, smaller number. Um, the rest of you guys want to maybe work for a while and learn or something, is that right? Raise your hand. Okay, that was my path. I don't think there's a right way to go, but uh, that's the way I did it. Um, so now the second question is, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Freedom. Okay. Freedom, be your own boss. Solve a problem. Money. Change lives. Change lives. More money. <laughs> okay, all great reasons. Um, and similar to me. So I wanted to... Is this thing working? Okay, so for me, one was the, the challenge. You know, the challenge and the personal growth. What can I do to really drive myself and learn and grow as a person? And then the second one was, you know, be able to have an impact. So take everything that I learn and have an impact, whether that's in my employees' lives, my company, my customers, or maybe the world. Um, you know, look at what, um, you know, the guys doing that are coming up with microfinance around the world, Khan Academy. These are phenomenal entrepreneurs that are changing the world. Um, so these are, the, these are the things that I usually talk about, I would say, during interviews or when I'm trying to look good, but, you know, also there's money, right? I, I was no different than you guys said it. Thank you for being honest. Um, that was a big driver for me um, to start. I, I would say, though, that that's definitely not enough. It's not enough of a driver because it's really hard to be an entrepreneur, and, and you'll give up if it's just money. So for me, I looked more on the personal growth and the impact. The odds are stacked against you as entrepreneurs. There's a good chance you won't make a lot of money. You might. You might because of your own skill. You'll probably make it because of your own skill and a lot of luck, but you might not make it because of you didn't get that lucky break. But if you're focused more on the personal growth, the challenge, the impact, I think that sustains you, or at least it sustained me. Um, so my background. I uh, grew up in small town Texas, about 40,000 people. I was a problem child. I always got in trouble in school. In fifth grade, I got kicked out of three different homeroom classes. Um, I was just an ADD kid. ADD wasn't around at the time. They, they weren't pre prescribing Ritalin, uh, but I would have been on a lot of it. Um, I, later on, I started taking school more seriously, but I was always the guy just cutting up and having fun with my friends. Um, in, in high school, I started to excel in like math and science and physics. So. 
Uh, when I went to Texas A&M, I decided to focus on chemical engineering, largely because of money. It had the highest salary when you graduate, but also because it allowed me to do whatever I wanted. You could go to business school, you could go to law school, you could go to medical school, I could be a chemical engineer, and I was good at math, science, and physics, so I, I thought I'd actually have an easier run at that degree than I would if I studied history, because I wasn't as good at that. Um, but also, a lot of it was just the challenge. It was the hardest degree at Texas A&M. I wanted to see if I could do it. Um, while at A&M, I, I worked for one of your sponsors, I'll plug those guys, Dow Chemical. I did that all throughout college, uh, working in chemical plants, and my, my mindset changed a lot. When I first started A&M and got into the chemical engineering classes, I was going to be a PhD chemical engineer, lab coat, make stuff. I thought that was fantastic. And then I went and worked in a plant where you're actually producing you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of stuff every hour and controlling these massive plants and having all these people that work for you, operators, it was, it was interesting. That's what I was going to do. Then I did that for about three semesters, and one day I sat down with my plant manager and said, how, how much do you get involved in what products you're making or uh, competitive analysis or how we price these things? And he said, uh, none. I'm, I'm, my job is to produce the pounds. And to me, that was not as exciting as maybe, you know, I, was, I think I had entrepreneurialism in my blood from an early age. I sold candy out of my backpack in junior high and made more money than my parents did. Um, so I was, I, I just, I, it didn't seem like it would sustain me for my life. I wanted to be more of a, uh, the other stuff seemed harder to me. What, what product should you make? How do you market it? How do you compete against competition? How do you price it? Uh, how do you market it? That was really difficult and ambiguous and challenging to me. So I got an internship in their marketing department where they were coming up with a new product and thinking about how to sell it. It was an epoxy that was really strong and solid like epoxies, but really flexible. Uh, and they were thinking you could use it in textbooks so that the pages laid flat and didn't tear. You could use it in garage door openers. I know this is probably the most boring stuff in the world. Um, but anyway, so I, I analyzed that for four months and really had a lot of fun going to conferences, talking to potential customers, figuring out how to price it. They flew me in their corporate jet to the, uh, their engineering facilities to talk with the engineers on how to build it, um, and it was great. So then I took a job with the Boston Consulting Group, because why do that for one company when maybe I could do that with a bunch of different companies? And BCG is... Um, before I did that, though, I worked really hard in college. I tutored my way through school. I worked at Dow Chemical, and chemical engineering was a bitch of a, of a degree. So I, I took my first break. I took a year off and went to Vail and just skied. Skied all winter, mountain biked all summer. Um, and I was scared to death to ask BCG to do this. I got the job offer from them. This is a prestigious firm. It's the number one sought-after firm by graduates of Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School. It's the number one place they say they want to work. And I got the job offer, and I called them up and said, hey, you know, think about maybe taking a year off and going to, to Vail and skiing. And I was terrified. I almost didn't do it. And one of my friends really talked me into it and said, these guys are going to think that's the coolest thing. They would want to do it, too. They're going to respect you for it. But I was still terrified. And I called the guy and told him, he said, you absolutely have to do that. This is the only time in your life you're going to be able to do that. Do it, do it, do it. It's gonna, next year will be the same. So this was a wonderful thing in my life. I had a blast. No responsibilities, no obligations. A great job lined up. Skied 180 days that year. Mountain biked 30 miles a day in the summertime. Uh, never been in better shape and as much of an alcoholic at the same time. Um, <laughs> just had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Um, and then when, when I was leaving, um, you know, I, I did learn something through that experience besides just having a lot of fun. Um, I, I knew that I could, no matter whatever happened in my life, I could come back to Vail and make just enough money to get by and have a great life, a great quality of life. So it might have taken the money edge off of me a little bit. Um, when I was leaving, one of my roommates said to me, Lauren, I'm so glad you're going to keep the world turning so I can enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, and <laughs> that kind of 
I almost didn't want to leave. I'm glad I did, but um, it, it was a wonderful life experience. Um, so then I started at Boston Consulting Group. These guys consider themselves business doctors. That's the way they described it to me. They predominantly work on Fortune 100 companies. Um, the type of problems or challenges the C-suite, CEOs, CFO, CMO are thinking about, and they put you on that project. So I'm 25 years old, um, sitting in a conference, you know, conference room with the president of one of the major airlines talking about, I mean, it was just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Absolutely loved it for the first year. Uh, the second year, I started, you know, it's like, what happened to those plans we just handed off to them and, and moved away? And, you know, did, did it work? You know, I, I, was, I, I wanted to do it more than just talk about it and plan it. That was more my style. And um, one, of the, one of the big changes for me, I... I um, was working on a project for a major plant automation company that just bought this small software company. And I was working with that entrepreneur they just bought um, for 20 million bucks, and he got 20% of their future software sales. And I'm trying to get this guy to build a model with me, the BCG way, heavy analysis. A lot of these guys have just big brains, bigger brains than anything else. Um, and I'm trying to get him to do this model with me. He looked at me and he said, Lauren, uh, I fly by the seat of my pants and I'm rarely wrong. <laughs> and that, that was kind of my reaction. He just sat there looking at me dead, you know, deadpan. And the more I got to know the guy, he was right to a degree. I mean, he was phenomenally successful. But he wasn't, he wasn't just flying by the seat of his pants. What he would do is get just enough information to make a decision and be 60, 70% sure he was right and then go and then figure it out on the fly. And that was much more my style than, than doing models and analysis and strategy and strategy and models and analysis. So I, I, I think I got the bug to, that I was going to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to go that route. That was more my way. Um, but um, what happens at BCG after two years when you're you know, one of the undergraduates, not an MBA student, normally what you do is you go back to business school, they pay for it, then you come back and work for them for a year to work it off. But what a lot of people would do is do something interesting for a year. Go start a company, go do the Peace Corps, join the Peace Corps, travel, um, start a company, because it diversifies yourself, great life experiences. If it works, great. Like in the startup analogy, if it doesn't, you go back to business school, plug right in, no, no harm, no foul. Um, so for me, I you know, looked at my options. Business school, Peace Corps, starting a company right then and there, um, traveling, I thought about all of them. But given my background in chemical engineering, and um, strategy consulting in Hollywood made a lot more sense. So <laughs> I moved out to L.A. to write, um, and everybody thought I was crazy. My parents were like, all that education, chemical engineering, you know, Boston Consulting Group, you're going out to L.A. to write and, 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 and do stand-up and maybe act. And it made sense to me, and it doesn't sound as crazy if you know, you know, really all I was doing was going to do this for two years. If it worked, great. If it didn't, I probably would learn a lot about myself, have a lot of fun, have great life experiences, go back to business school, jump right back into uh, be a contributing member of society. Um, and it was, it was an amazing experience. I did it for two years. I promised myself that during that two-year time frame, I would not allow myself to question anything I was doing um, because I knew it was going to be really hard. And um, you know, standing up in front of people trying to make them laugh. I knew it was going to be really difficult um, writing in Hollywood, trying to get into the industry where you've got 3,000 union members and 300,000 people trying to be union members. You know, really tough odds stacked against you. So I did it for two years, and I loved it. And I, I had more fun than anything else I'd ever done. I got great feedback enough to make me want to keep doing it. Um, so I did it for about five or six years, and then started... Um, just doing the math a little bit more and looking around at my friends, and I didn't know a single person that had a career that I would be fulfilled with. 
you know, and, and, and I, the more I started doing it, I realized that it's about a 10-year gig for overnight success, and you might not get it. So, you know, wait 10 years, and the odds were just, to me, were too high stacked against me, whereas um, friends of mine from BCG or Dow Chemical all had great lives. They were making good money. They were able to travel. They had family. So it was a tough decision for me, honestly, because I loved it so much, and I didn't want to admit failure like it didn't work. Um, so I started working a little bit more and migrating back into the business world. I went to, oh, um, oh, I left this out. Uh, my second big break, right after uh, BCG, before moving out to L.A., I wanted to kind of cleanse my palate from the business world, and I, I traveled for three months through, through Europe. And this might be the one little piece of advice I'll give you guys. I told you I wasn't. But if you get a chance to do that, do it. You know, if you get a chance to do a multi-month trip uh, through Europe, it's not as expensive as you'd think. You can do it for 40, 50 bucks a day. Um, you know, hostel, backpack, do it by yourself. Um, and you'll never have the experience that you will now while you're, while you're young. You know, um, when you guys are at a bar by yourself, um, you know, people, they come to you and want you to come into their home and take you to their home. That won't happen for me anymore. I'm an, I'm an adult. You know, they, they won't do that anymore. But like, it, it was an amazing experience. You know, I was backpacking through Bulgaria by myself, backpack, hitchhiking. Um, I've never hitchhiked here. It's very common over there and safe. I get picked up by this young couple. Um, it's just one amazing experience. And I'm, I'm sitting in the back seat, and she's driving, turned around talking to me. And her husband's looking in the rearview mirror and smiling the whole time, just staring at me. And this was 1997. And she says, I, I am sorry, but uh, you, are, you are the first American he has, he has ever seen. And, <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm, I'm so dressed down. I'm trying not to look you know, American or, or anything. I'm trying to look like I have any money, which is pretty easy because I didn't have any money. Um, and, and I was like, well, how, how did you know I was an American? And she goes, um, it, it is written on your forehead. <laughs> but then these people like took me into their home and introduced me to their parents and their grandparents. They wouldn't let me pay for anything. Um, these guys were making four bucks a month, average monthly wage at that time, I believe. Um, really, really poor, really depressed. Um, and, and they were taking me out around their town and paying for everything. Same thing happened in Morocco, traveling through Morocco. These, these young kids took me around and wouldn't let me pay for No, you're in our country. You're our guest. You're our guest. And you know, just like if you guys met a guy from you know, Portugal on the street, you'd probably bring him into your home and let him stay with you, right? You know? it, it just blew my mind that they were that gracious and, and open and, and that poor as well. So it, it probably was the seed of, of making sure I wanted to, to give back in some way, because I realized just how lucky I was just to be born you know, in the United States and have the family that I had. And no matter how poor you are here, you've kind of won the lottery compared to so many other countries. Um, so it was an amazing experience. When I was leaving BCG, I had one of my partners ask me to do an ROI analysis on taking three months off and traveling through Europe. He was dead serious. He was trying to talk me out of it. Like it was, you know, doing net present value on the money you're going to spend and the money you're going to leave. I just couldn't believe that. Um, but anyway, one of the best things I ever did. So lessons from La La Land. Uh, when I was in, you know, uh, doing stand-up and acting and writing, some things I learned, the art of storytelling, just getting in front of your company and being able to tell a story. Why are we doing this? Why is it important? Why does this matter to you? Why should you personally care in your career? Why should you be motivated? Not just doing this for me. Getting up in front of customers, investors, uh, yourself, when you're so despondent and beat up, and you have to say, okay, you're going to get through this and tell a story to yourself. Um, public speaking, um, empathy, 
This is a, a weird one that I never would have thought I would have got out of acting, but when you study a character to, to, to play that character, if you have a judgment on that character in any way whatsoever, you can't play it uh, genuinely. You'll play it stereotypically. You won't put yourself into it. You won't understand how would I be if I was in that character's situations. And I think growing up very analytical as a chemical engineer and maybe a little bit of a jerk, me and my friends were so cruel to each other and just cutting each other down left and right. I don't think I had a lot of empathy, um, but I learned more of it here. Um, emotional intelligence, reading people, listening, self-awareness, working with diverse teams. BCG prided themselves on hiring diverse people, but they were diverse in exactly the same way. You know, they, were, they all went skydiving. They all loved to go on adventure uh, vacations. They had this degree. Or, they were all diverse in exactly the same way. Working in L.A. and uh, directing a short film and having one of the people you're working with that was a you know, drug addict, recovering drug addict, another that never graduated high school, um, another that um, was a Harvard MBA. You know, that's, that was diversity. Um, and I think I learned a lot more about working with a broad range of people Giving and receiving personal feedback. So uh, there's not much person, more personal than telling somebody they're not acting the right way. You know, it's, uh, you, you know you don't, I don't buy that, you're really, um, that you really love that person in the, in the scene. You know, you, I think you have a problem with um, you know, intimacy. You know, that's, that's really personal feedback. Learning how to give that, though, uh, I found was critical in business with my teams because sometimes things are pretty personal. Um, they're not getting along with other people. They're judging other people. Giving that kind of feedback and learning how to do it in a way that doesn't overly deflate somebody. Um, and is that identifying, identifying and empowering artists. So working with really, really talented actors and not getting in their way, but like empowering them and just taking a step back and letting them do it. Encouraging them and not getting in the way. Um, at Cox, which acquired us last year, I was just telling John that just last week, they brought 15 people from uh, their 15,000 employees company-wide and took them to this leadership development program. And I was selected as one of those. And the first three days, we're spending time with actors on learning traits that you can learn from actors in leadership. And I'd been saying this stuff for a long time, that I learned more about leadership from that five years than I did from BCG or Dow or anything I'd ever done. So I, I didn't plan on that. That's not why I went out there. I can't say I designed it that way. But for me, that, that proved very true. Um, when I started migrating back out of the uh, entertainment industry and more into business, I went to work for the Resnicks in Los Angeles. Self-made billionaires, Lyndon Stewart Resnick. Um, their company, Roll International, owns Fiji Water, Palm Wonderful, Teleflora, um, Paramount Farms, which are the largest landowners in California, a bunch of farming assets, largest citrus pr uh, provider to the Sunkiss label, largest producer of almonds and pistachios in the world. You know, massive, massively successful companies and just phenomenal entrepreneurs. And I worked there for four years. I wanted to get my P&L experience. I wanted to be able to go out and tell investors that I ran a $60 million business, which I did uh, before I left there, and, and say I grew it and cut costs and all the things that they would want to hear to be inspired that they could trust me with their money to go uh, build a business. And just a couple of quotes I, like, I got from this guy that I loved a lot and really impacted me. He always says he'd rather have a B idea and an A execution than an A idea and a B execution. These guys were execution-oriented people. You know, it's not about your ideas. Everybody else has great ideas, too. It's about can you execute on it better than everybody else? Can you do the hard work every day? Can you inspire teams? Can you motivate teams? Can you manage teams? Um, another good one he had was he was the master of keeping things simple. He, all these businesses he would run on a single-page P&L, really, really simple. And he always said, business is easy. You make revenue go up and costs go down. 
And, you know, it's kind of a joke, but it's, it's, it's true. You know, I think people overcomplicate things. It's not that difficult or complex, at least the theories and the strategies and the ideas. The execution is dealing with realities that come up is, but the day-to-day and what you do or the plan is not that hard. Um, after doing this for four years, I had a good job, good salary, kind of liked what I was doing, but I was kind of bored. A lot of you guys mentioned, you know, um, autonomy and personal freedom. I think I wanted to do that. I also felt like I could create a better culture. Um, they were phenomenal entrepreneurs, but they weren't, they were kind of old school. They weren't necessarily known for a great culture or retaining people. So they had a lot of turnover, a lot of people churning and burning. I still learned a lot from them. They're amazing business people and they got a lot of really smart people to work there by just paying them really well. But it didn't, it didn't have a great culture. I didn't feel like they had people's hearts and minds and souls invested in their business. So I wrote down on a piece of paper what I wanted to do. I um, wanted to attach myself to a rocket. I wasn't real industry specific. I, wasn't, I didn't, didn't say I want to go build chairs or go start this or whatever. I was kind of drawn to the internet just because when I was in the entertainment industry, I wasn't waiting tables. I was doing business plans for startup companies, mostly internet companies. So I had a lot of experience in that. And uh, I, you know, I graduated college in 94. Uh, right around when the internet was born, right? So I kind of, my professional career mirrored the rise of the internet. So I was, I was drawn to that. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have an industry. I just wanted to attach myself to a rocket. I wanted to work with really smart, capable people. I wanted to create a great culture where I enjoyed working with people. They enjoyed being there every day. I wanted to have a funky, creative workspace. I didn't want to have like cubicles and suit and tie. I wanted people to be able to wear whatever they wanted to wear and just be a fun place to hang out, a fun place to work. And I wanted to have an office dog. So that's literally what I wrote down on a piece of paper, what I was going to go do. Um, I was able to achieve all these things. And they were all great ideas, except the office dog. It's like taking a toddler to work with you. It was ridiculously stupid. I took a, a two-year-old Labrador retriever, um, tons of energy, and uh, it doesn't come to the office with me anymore. Um, but we do, have, we do allow office dogs, just not my dog. <laughs> um, the, and, um, so after, let me jump back. So after doing this, I started networking around. I wanted to find uh, great technologists, other entrepreneurs, other partners that I could work with to build a company. Um, and it was one of those things, you know, my, my girlfriend's cousin's husband's friend introduced me to somebody here in Santa Barbara, a guy named Per Pedersen, who's the CTO and co-founder of Commission Junction. Um, he, he had sold that company a couple years ago. He had this URL for a company called Savings.com. He had just gotten rid of the entire management team behind a previous business, behind Savings.com, and was looking to do something different with it. Met him, uh, hit it off really well, uh, just good personal chemistry. So I, I, I took a step back and came up with what I thought would be a strategy for Savings.com. There was a young kid in his office that had this idea of Dig.com for deals. This was back in 2007. Um, and I thought that was a great idea. I thought we could build something off of that. So I, I sketched this out on a whiteboard with Pear over a, a Saturday. I wanted to spend about five hours with them to see if there was kind of intellectual and personal simpatico or whatever. Is this guy I could work with and trust for the next few years of my life? Um, and I don't know if I want to get into too many details, but probably good to give you a different a general overview of it. The, the left-hand side is where we would get deal content. The right-hand side is where we would distribute deal content. So the top left is we would get deals directly from merchants, um, where they would maybe enter deals through a merchant portal. Uh, the middle one is data feeds and uh, from third-party aggregators like Commission Junction and other affiliate networks get deals wherever they existed. The top would be maybe exclusive deals just for us. The middle would be all the deals that are available. 
Then the bottom would be user submitted deal content. And then we'd take all that data, put it into a central database, QA the hell out of it, attach metadata so we could categorize it, or rank it by popularity, figure out what's the best deal, and then show consumers just the deals they want to see, depending on what they're looking for, what's the best deal, what's the most popular deals. And we would distribute, distribute that through savings.com, through SEO, paid search, remarketing, um, but then also syndicate it out through other third-party partners. So I wrote up there, superpages.com, Valpac, SmartSource, uh, mobile devices. So this is the page from our uh, 2007 pitch deck, and this really didn't change much. And interestingly enough, Alpac is, you know, the company that bought us at the end. So when we when we went to VCs and pitched this, I had a slide in there saying potential exits and outcomes, and I had three different groups that could buy us. One would be IYPs, um, Internet Yellow Pages. They had merchant relationships. They needed to migrate and change their business. Hart Hanks, which had Penny Saver. Uh, similar situation. And then Valpac. They had local relationships, local merchants, um, in a mature business that was changing. They would need to digitize it. And I felt if we were able to get traction and build a good product, that we'd be able to command a good premium for, for that price. And I was pretty proud that this is what we, we wrote down before we even started the business. And then when we sold the business, we actually sold it to one of the targets that we uh, identified. There's a lot of luck in that, but it was still, still proud it happened that way. Um, so a little bit about the path after we decided to do this. I quit my job. I gave them two months' notice just to have a good transition and leave everything on good terms. Started January 1, 2007. We sketched out that idea. We built it. We launched in March of 2007. And you know I was thrilled. This was my dream job. Great engineers, cool people. Uh, we were working really hard. We were partying at nights and weekends, too, and burning candle at both ends, um, scaling, growing. Everything was going wonderful. And then absolute disaster hit. Um, one of of our investors and partners had a some some previous relationships that didn't sit well with uh, Commission Junction, which was our largest partner. So they cut us off completely. We're no longer working with you. Here's a cease and desist letter. Uh, we're actually probably going to sue you as well. Uh, please send us these ten things and confirm that you're no longer doing this, 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 and this. And I'm like, and that was ninety percent of my revenue. Gone. We had 100, 150 grand in the bank <laughs> at this point in time as well. So um, we were, you know, likely going to go out of business. So I, you know, probably, you know, cried that night. And then the next day, woke up and said, "Okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this?" Um, so unfortunately, we had to lay off almost everybody. Uh, we got four of us left that we could afford to pay for about six months. Me not being one of them, I had to contract myself out to other businesses to get money because um, I just um, they couldn't afford to pay me. So I got about 10% of my salary from Savings.com, 90% from other uh, businesses that Pear was involved with. So they were in the family, but um, I, I was able to reduce the cost at Savings.com. And then we just got really scrappy and figured out other ways of getting, um, what do I have next here? We started rebuilding, you know, figuring out other ways of getting those relationships to make money outside of CJ. How can we get these merchants to pay us outside of them? So working with other affiliate networks, working directly with merchants, working with other third-party aggregators of data, and just got scrappy and uh, aggressive and figured it out. And got to break even by September of 2007. Um, and then we were profitable after, after that, every month after that uh, to this day. So we, and then I just started taking every dollar that we made and building it back into the company. Um, so we survived, got to profitability, 
And then it was time to go out and get VC money, I felt like. We had a team, I had a track record, I had this resume that I worked so hard to build. We were profitable, we had a good story. So we went out to Sand Hill and pitched every VC. And um, you know, a lot of stories on this, but I don't think they're too difficult or different than any other VC stories you'll hear. But we got really close with one, USVP. You, um, it's an $800 million venture firm, uh, huge fund. Um, they were going to close. I did the partner pitch. Everything was great. They're like, yeah, we're going to get there. Let's get a phone call from them at the last minute saying, you know, we've decided to go another direction. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, uh, why? And they're like, well, we just, uh, we, we love you guys. We think you're great, but um, uh, we just can't get there right now for some other things were going on. They wouldn't give me a real straight answer, but the, the gist of it was, no, we're not going to work with you guys. So we, um, we just did it on our own. We started growing on our own. We were still profitable. Uh, every month was a record month for us. We just, you know, nose down. I'm not going to complain too much. I stopped going out for VC money because that just takes a lot of time and energy, and I just spent three months doing it. I was like, okay, screw it. I'm Screw those guys. I'm just going to do it on my own. Um, so we started raising um, our sales, uh, doing better. I was traveling like crazy, working harder than I've ever worked in my life, but having a lot of fun too. Um, and then just an interesting story. I don't know if this had anything to do with our growth after this, but you guys all know Comscore? Um, they do all kinds of analysis on the internet in general. Every quarter they do the state of the internet economy. Um, so I'm, I'm dialed into this guy doing uh, his state of the U.S. internet retail economy. And a lot of the slides were about you know, coupons and more and more coupons in the industry. And at the very end of the presentation, so investors um, listen to this, VCs listen to this, uh, influential people in the VC and investment community all listen to this um, presentation. It's live. Um, they asked if there were any questions, and I typed in a question. I said, do you believe that coupons are going to be one of the most powerful industries of 2009? <laughs> Total self-serving question, right? Because I'm, I'm just trying to build the reputation for coupon uh, companies in general, so maybe I can go out and raise more money. And it was one of the questions they decided to answer, and Gian Fulgiani said, I think word for word, he said, I would have to say a resounding yes. And the market is ready. The consumers are ready, and I think we're going to see significant activity in this space over the next year. <laughs> you know, immediately after that, VC started talking to me. Uh, I don't think it was just that. You know, a few things happened. Um, uh, global financial crisis hit, so people were less interested in investing, but they were more interested in investing in businesses that might do well in a recession. This is late 2008. So coupons, deals, discounts, promotions. Uh, plus, USVP then called me up and said, hey, I'd love to see how you're doing. We'd love to come down and see, are you doing your plan? Are you doing what you said you were going to be able to accomplish? And we were killing the numbers we told them we were going to do by like 40%. So they came down, looked at the numbers, got real interested again real quickly, and then closed around in um, September, August of 2008 for $4 million. bucks. Uh, we were profitable at this time. We weren't sure we needed it. We, we could have, in hindsight, uh, bootstrapped it and never, need never touched that money because we never did. Um, we were profitable. We stayed profitable. But the risk, you know, if there was another hiccup, I still only had 100 grand in the bank. So another big hiccup. Now we had a staff of 20 people. Um, would go out of business if we had a hiccup with only 100 grand in the bank. So it was a, it was no brainer to do it. Gave up 25% of the company, um, four million bucks in the bank, a nice cushion, the ability to go more aggressive, uh, and they were a good partner. So we continued to invest in the business and grow. We expanded internationally in the UK. Um, just a lot of blocking and tackling on that strategy slide I showed you before, um, and um, then the. The industry really changed when Groupon came on the market, and uh, Retail Me Not, you guys heard of these guys as well? Uh, Retail Me Not was taking off like crazy. Um, 
performance marketing brands bought Ebates. So there was a lot of big money coming into the coupon and deal space. So I knew we needed to get bigger, quicker, um, aggressively. We either needed to buy companies, get bought, or raise a ton of money to go out and do some aggressive things to get bigger, quicker. You wouldn't be able to survive against these uh, juggernauts. So I started doing all three of those things. We were looking at buying retail, may not. We were looking at buying slick deals. I had private equity term sheets for $100 million to go do that. Um, we, were, we were talking with other companies, kind of flirting to see if they'd be interested in acquiring us. There's a saying about businesses that businesses are, businesses are never sold, they're bought. Like once you put a for sale sign on your business, people are immediately skeptical, right? And they're, they're, they're going to discount your business significantly. So you're much better off saying, no, 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 we're not for sale, and then let them kind of pursue you, and, and you'll do a better job of getting a price. So I was out there flirting with businesses without acting like we're for sale, um, looking at businesses to buy, and then talking with lots of money sources to get money to get bigger quicker. Um, and then uh, Valpac, we were introduced to, um, oh, it's 13, so summer of 2011. And we had a meeting where we outlined what we do as a company, and they outlined what they do as a company. And they were completely separate. We were online, we were digital, we were mostly national merchants. They were local, they were paper, you know, the envelopes you get in the mail, the Valpac. Um, so they didn't do anything we did, we didn't do anything they did, but the business made a lot of sense together. So real quickly we started pursuing an acquisition and, and the guy called me up and said, hey, I don't want to offend you, and I hope this doesn't offend you, but would you be interested in potentially you know, selling your business? And, um, and then we had a long, year-long negotiation. Literally, it was a year-long negotiation on making this deal work. My VCs and investors weren't going to sell below $100 million um, just because they believed in what we were doing. And um, you know, they had just gone through a, a deal that didn't work out so well for them, so they were a nervous buyer. So I spent a year being a diplomat. And I, I guess the best analogy I could give for it is, can you imagine like the pressure that... You know, Tiger Woods might feel on like an eight-foot putt to win, you know, the Masters, you know, several years ago. But um, that pressure <laughs> that he might feel in that situation. Now, imagine that for a year. Uh, that's that's kind of what my life was like for a year doing, doing that negotiation. And still having to run the business so that no numbers fell and they would get nervous <coughs> or scared. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I loved the negotiation. I loved the deal. I'll love it a lot more the next time because <laughs> this one just meant so much to me. If it happened, complete life-changing event. If it didn't, not. You know, and that's a lot, a lot of pressure, um, but a lot of fun at the same time too. So we sold um, last summer, 2012. Um, it's been a great uh, run since then. They're a good company. They're a family-run business, so it was almost like going public without having to answer to Wall Street. Uh, they spent a lot of money on AutoTrader before that company ever made money. They're willing to go long. They don't need to answer Wall Street every quarter. And they're just good people. Um, when we diligence them, everybody said things like, their handshake means more than a contract. Um, and we found that to be true. So it's been a really good fit for us culturally. Uh, as John mentioned in the introduction, culture was a big thing for us. One, just because life's short. I don't want to work at a place where everybody's miserable. Uh, but two, I think it's actually good for business if people care about what they're doing, care about you, care about the company, care about our customers. Uh, and if you work, you want to work with really smart, aggressive, hardworking people, they want that respect. You know, they want that elbow room. You, they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be yelled at. Um, a great uh, mentor of mine said that the best leaders come out of volunteer organizations because they learn how to get people to do things without money. And he said, the reality is all your employees are volunteers because they can get out and walk whenever they want. They can, they can vote with their feet and go work for somebody else. So we definitely built a culture that is built on that, and they're very similar. So it's been a great 
fit. Um, I just want to point out that the area that I circled, these were the, some of the toughest years of my life. And I, I read something in the middle of this. I don't even remember where I got this from. But somebody said, during those early days of being an entrepreneur, when you're stressed out and you're scared and you're working your ass off and you're not sleeping and you're riding this emotional roller coaster every day, I guarantee you later on in your life, you're going to look back on those days as being the best days of your life. So why not enjoy them when they're happening? <laughs> this was the article. And I was like, it really changed my mindset. And I went and told my team uh, that after reading it. And I've had, the, there were only four of us at the time in the, in, the, in the early days. And I've had each one of them come up to me independently and say, you were right. I still look back on those days as being the best days of my life. And thank you for saying that because you made me enjoy it while it was happening. Um, so I found that to be very valuable for me. Um, yeah, so I just said that. So just, just um, you know, one point, um, a lot of times I've heard someone say that if you have a really strong strategy and you do the work up front and you really analyze the market and think about it correctly, your strategy really shouldn't change that much. Tactics, yes. Approaches, yes. But the overall strategy shouldn't. It can. You know, maybe you have the wrong strategy or the market changes and you have to pivot completely. But this was the slide we had in the deck uh, to Valpac. It's the exact same slide as that, uh, what I drew up on the board with Pear uh, the first day. And, I, and I, was, I was proud that we were able to uh, make that work and, um, um, and stick to it. A lot of tactics changed, um, but the strategy stayed the same pretty much the entire five, six years. Um, so you know, I talked to you guys before about um, <coughs> You know, your great idea, I don't think, is good enough. Uh, I, I, I talk with a lot of entrepreneurs and friends of mine saying, hey, I got this idea. And they lay out this idea, and it's a great idea, but there's no way they can do it because it, News Corp is going to do that. Or a company so much bigger than them will do it more effectively than they do. Or as soon as they get it out there, someone's going to just trounce them. So the idea isn't enough. You've got to think about how you can execute it and how you can build it. Um, and I tend to think of two different paths you can do to launch your company. One is gain credibility and attract the resources to do it later. That's more of what I did, right? I built my resume. I had these things that I did. I ran a company. I learned. I worked on my own skills. Um, and that worked well for me. Um, or just do it yourself. And I know a lot of people who have done this path as well. And that means you know, if you're a, a software engineer and you have an internet idea, you build it yourself. The guys that did Retail Me Not, two guys, they built it themselves. Uh, one guy did all the coding front-end engineering, back-end engineering, design, everything. Um, they sold it for $150 million five, six years later. Um, so you can do it yourself. Um, I would just encourage you to think about, if, if that's the route you're going to go, how do you attract the resources that you need? If you can do it all yourself, great. And there's a lot of internet businesses now where you can. But if you want to try to attract a team or attract money, how do you sequence it so that you can do that and you're not just some idea. You've got to get away from, I think, from just being an idea. Um, one of the things I worked on a lot in my career, one, you know, this idea of gaining the credibility of myself was building a general manager's toolkit. And um, you know, people talk about this at BCG, other leaders that I worked with. These are the things that were important to be a strong general manager or owner or driver of your business. Uh, product capability, knowing how to build something that people actually want, how to market it, a strong analytical capability to analyze data and figure out, is it working, is it not working? Uh, storytelling, as I talked about before, um, to your investors, to your customers, to yourself, to your team, to your partners, to your suppliers. How do you make them want what you want them to want? Not sell them, but make them want it. Um, 
sales, deals, negotiations, running a P&L strategy, managerial science, leadership, and people skills. Those are two very, very different things. I love a quote by Colin Powell. He said, leadership is the art of accomplishing what the science of management says is impossible. Um, leadership is about the people skills, inspiring people to do things they didn't think they could do, get teams to work together, build a culture. Managerial science is more about tracking it to make sure it's actually happened as you said it was going to happen, um, and learning from the data. Being a life learner uh, and common sense. And I just wanted to point out my observations of the people in my organization that really do well. The thing that I'm most often looking for, the things that I'm most often looking for are those right there. All of these are important, but um, these are a lot more rare. People who really spend the time to become a great leader, to really develop strong people skills, to become a life learner and not think they know it all. Um, and common sense is the least common asset on the planet uh, by far. Um, so um, I'm just going to share some things some mentors told me along the way that were really useful to me. I, growing up as a chemical engineer and being a math guy and a science guy, I think I was more head than, than heart or soul. I was very analytical. Uh, my friends used to, uh, there's a song, the Journey, that I got to do it my way or no way at all. They used to sing that about me all the time. Like I was just my way and I, I wouldn't really listen to people, wouldn't take their advice and probably a pain in the ass to be around. Um, but later on, uh, uh, um, one of my mentors told me I was having trouble with Intelliflora of getting people to do things and getting people to rally around me. And I was like, I got the right idea. It's, this is the right idea. And he was like, yeah, 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 it's the right idea. Uh, but you're out there, you know, a mile down the street charging, and you've got zero people behind you. <laughs> you're all by yourself. Um, and he started talking about some of the things I was doing. And I was like, well, I just want them to to know that I'm capable. I want them to know that I'm smart. And he's like, Lauren, you don't have to do that. They all know you're smart. They just don't know that you care about them. And that hit, that hit me. It hurt, too. You know, I was like, what well, I do? And he's like, well, you know, every time you go talk to them, they know you want something from them. How about just ask them how their weekend was? And in my mindset, I was like, you know, so ambitious about trying to win and grow my career and, and all win together. I just assumed everybody else kind of thought the same way. I didn't want to infringe upon their personal time to ask them about the weekend. We're at work. We'll go do that after beers or something. But people don't really think that way. So I really changed my style and started enjoying work more, enjoying the people I work with more in a genuine way, not just, you know, hey, how was your weekend? Can you do this for me? <laughs> you know, like really getting to know the people I work with um, and studying great leaders and taking the time to do that and self-reflection, study myself. Um, and it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, but I, I, I want to ask you guys to do something. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but think about the, the smartest person you know, biggest brain, knows, knows everything, L literally the smartest person you know. You have someone in mind? Yeah. yeah. Um, now think about somebody that you um, really enjoy being with that makes you feel good about yourself. You have somebody in mind? Yeah. Who would you rather you know, work with or work for? Um, just out of curiosity. First guy or second guy? Second guy? Hold up your hands. It could be the, you know, maybe the really smart one is good too. Yeah. Um, so pretty much all of you guys said that. So it's not about how smart you are. It's more about can you make people, you know, leadership is a um, elected position, you know, even in a company. They elect you to be their leader. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't command leadership. You don't command authority. Uh, even the military doesn't drive that way at the highest levels. Yeah, when they're talking to the soldiers and it's someone 10 levels up, they do. Um, but when you start getting to the senior levels of military leadership, it's a very evolved leadership style. Um, I love this quote. I'm going to let you guys read it. 
And um, I, uh, another book I was reading at this time talked about you know how you can how you can deflate people and make them feel bad about yourself themselves. And it's not always what you say; it can be just a look that you give them or a look on your face. Um, and, and, and learning to take responsibility for how you make other people feel. Um, I was working at Telefloor, and the guy that ran the sales organization, I got along with so great. And there were several other people I got along with really great in Telefloor. And I was like, you know, I don't know that it's my problem. I get along really great with these, you know, these, this person, this person, this person, this person. Um, it's other people I don't, but maybe that's, that's their issue. Look at all these people I get along really well with. And then I started waking up, and the people that I get along really well with get along really well with everybody. They're good at it. They, they've taken time to learn how to do it. Uh, they've invested in, in taking a genuine interest in other people and showing them you care about them. Um, hard stuff, for me, at least. I, some, I think some people it comes more naturally, but it took me a while to get there. Um, so, you know, studying leaders was really important to me, looking at uh, really effective leaders. I loved, there was a story about Benjamin Franklin when he was about 30 years old, and a woman sat him down and said something along the lines of, you idiot, nobody is ever going to listen to you as long as they think that you think you're smarter than them. And I think I probably did think I was smarter than people and, and came across that way. And that was naivety and just being green and uh, ego. Um, and so he changed his entire style of how he spoke. He didn't say, I know this is right, everybody. This is what we're going to do. He said, you know, uh, perhaps this would work if we tried something like this. It would be interesting to try that. What do you guys think? And completely changed his leadership style, completely, at 30 years old and accomplished a few things. Charles Schwab had another, um, read another great story about him. He, he, he would, at the end of every single day, he would write down all the conversations and interactions he had with people and write down what he could have done better, what he could have done differently, what worked, what didn't work. That's pretty extreme. Um, now, I don't do that, but I do it a lot. You know, on important conversations, I'll think about it afterwards and say, okay, could I set that up differently? Could I maybe instead of just confronting them with it, let it be their idea? Could I have asked them how, you know, I, I think about that a lot. And I think this is a wonderful thing to do. Um, and as I was saying before, I think very few people take the time to focus on this stuff, in my experience, from watching just the working world. And it's what I'm looking for more than anything. Another good quote. I read this, the birth of my first child, it was on the door of the nurse's station. I took a picture of it and uh, loved it. So these were things that had a big impact on, on me. Um, Peter Drucker talked about your first and foremost job as a leader is to take charge of your own energy and then help to orchestrate the energy of those around you. So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is self-reflection. Look at yourself. What are you doing that is stupid? Uh, <laughs> what do you need to work on personally? What's just totally ineffective? What are your blind spots? Finding mentors, asking people around you what's working, what's not working, doing 360 feedback, building trust enough with people that they will sit down and tell you. Because you know, if, if people are working for you, their first reaction is, no, no, everything's great. Everything's great. But when you can actually build that kind of relationship with someone where they sit you down and say, um, a feedback I got recently from one of my direct reports was, you know, you're, you're, you're coming across so passionate about these ideas, um, these new things that we're doing that people think you're selling them, you know, and maybe pull back off that a little bit or just say that you don't know if this will work because you know it'll work in your own brain. That's just the way you think. But they think they're kind of being sold a bill of goods. Not everybody, the engineers, though, the, the really analytical people, they think they're being sold a bill of goods. So um, 
That's great feedback, really useful feedback. And he wouldn't have given me that if I didn't build that kind of relationship with him. Um, another piece of this, I've, with every assistant I've had, I've told them, if they ever see me looking like I'm freaking out, <laughs> like too stressed, too worried, tell me. And usually it's because I was, but I don't want to act that way in my company. It's okay to show some vulnerability and say, hey, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but you shouldn't look like you're freaking out in front of everybody. You know, they're going to model your own behavior. Um, Another great piece of advice, I got this out of a book given to me when I graduated high school, and the, the story in there was something along the lines of, you know, a green tomato is, um, you know, it's a hard tomato, it's firmly attached to the vine, it's still growing, uh, it's tough to knock off the vine, uh, but the ripe one falls to the ground, rots, and dies. Um, and, I, I, you know, you'll find, you guys know people like this, just that question I gave you earlier, the ones that have it all figured out, know everything. You're less interested in those people. Um, and they're less open to listen to your feedback and really um, you know, take other people's opinions, which are important. Not just for building consensus, but you don't have it all figured out. You want other people to give you their feedback as well. So um, I, I have an ego. Everybody has an ego, I think. I've got an ego. My wife will tell you it's a very big ego. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of goes in cycles, usually. I get really confident with myself. I make some cool stuff happen at work. The team's working great. We just closed a big deal. My God, I am pretty good. And then I stop thinking about people. You know, I stop listening, and I get humbled, and it's a big fall. And I build back up again. <laughs> um, so I, I try to remind myself to keep those falls small by staying humble, staying green. You don't have it all figured out. These are things that I work on with myself. Um, so I talked earlier about the things that motivated me. And, uh, you know, can money, you know, I just want to pose the question, can money buy you happiness? And, and I, I will say from my own experiences, Yes, it can, absolutely. <laughs> I love this car, okay, I just bought it a few months ago. I'm happy every single time I get in this car. I'm happy when I see it, when I get out of the office, I'm happy when I drove up here. I took a winding road up through Malibu with, uh, for about an hour before. It's, I'm happy zero to 60 in 2.7 seconds. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy. Um, but something I, I, <laughs> I, I realized is, um, you know, to me, happiness is a temporary emotion. Um, comes and goes. If you're just focused on happiness, I'm focused more on fulfillment. I like being happy. I like cars. I'm not a purist. I'm not saying I don't like money, but I'm focused more on, um, you know, what's going to give me personal fulfillment in life, where I can, you know, die tomorrow and be happy, or live to be 100 and be happy and be proud of what I did. Um, and you know, I thank you guys for having me here to do this because it kind of made me reflect and think about what motivated me, and I, I really changed. Changed. Um, here's well. I'm going to just go past that. I changed my the, the things. I, I took money off of there for me. Not saying that money's not important, and I don't like it because I do. <laughs> um, but to me, it's still a challenge in the growth, the ability to have personal impact, and then life experiences. And money is a part of that. You know, it's it's nice. That I, I I know my kids are going to be okay for college. I, I as I said, I love that car. It makes me happy. Uh, money is a is a piece that gives me experiences. It enables me to to give to charities that I'm in, involved with and that are important to me. But to me, it's about kind of maximizing these three things, and, and money really doesn't come into the mind so much anymore. I may um, go do another startup and chase a, a ton of money if I love the job and I love what I'm chasing, and I'm going to surround myself by a team and enjoy it along the way. And I think I could make a lot of money. I may do that, because then I could take that money and maybe give to more charities and have more of an impact in life and have more experiences, travel with my family. 
but I may take a job at a nonprofit and make very little money, um, but have what I made from, from the sale of savings.com and do things that I, I really feel fulfilled about every day. I don't know which path I'm going to go over the next few years, but I don't think about money so much. So for whatever that's worth, um, that's, that's what drives me. Um, and, uh, you know, I thank you guys again for having me here to do this because I run so fast, I think, with work. I talk fast, I think fast. I don't really take the time to take a step back and reflect. Um, and this made me do that. So thank you for having me. Yeah, can you just talk about how your experience as a management consultant has kind of shaped your mindset as an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, so the, the two years at BCG was a phenomenal education on strategy, um, how to analyze businesses, um, how to make a business successful. Um, and that's, that you saw in the, the general manager's toolkit, that was one of them. So that, that's what I learned there. There's a lot more to it, though, so that's not enough. I mean, there's a lot of consultants I know that would um, never do anything else, and frankly, you never, probably never could do anything else but consulting, because they're just a big old brain. You know? They're great at strategy, but they're not so great at um, dealing with people, at execution. You know, one of my, a good friend of mine uh, is working at uh, one of the largest oil companies in Russia, and they brought in McKinsey and Company to do some strategy consulting for him. And he said, man, those guys are long on brains and short on execution. That was his quote. Um, so I, I, what, I loved it. I, I kind of got my MBA in that two years. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel like I would need to get an MBA after doing that. So that was a good education and a good skill set. And um, I feel like I'm, I have a lot of confidence in my strategic capabilities. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.